Rep. C.T. Chin, one of our Alpha leaders, preach today. If you can give him a, a round of encouragement. We're doing this Thriving in Work series, and he's going to be bringing very, uh, a lot of his real-life experience uh, from the workplace into it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 2 and read through chapter 4 a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, that's, that's fine too. The words will be on the screen for you. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Thanks, Dave. Good morning. Um, so I think when it comes to the idea of sharing faith at work, a lot of us here probably feel a twinge of discomfort about this topic. Let's get straight to the point. I think most professional environments, uh, the general consensus is that spiritual beliefs are highly personal. They elicit strong and often divisive feelings. So the idea of bringing up faith and beliefs at work is sort of a recipe for awkwardness at best and maybe potentially an HR violation at worst. Um, now, those of us here who identify as Christian have heard of the Great Commission, Jesus' final instructions to his followers to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in his name. The Bible makes it pretty clear that those who believe in him are in fact to share his good news, not to put it too fine of a point on it, but it's literally everything Jesus was working toward in his ministry. It was the entire point of his mission. Um, for those of us that do work though, work is a big part of our lives. The average person spends about a third of their waking life uh, in work, uh, of their actual life in work, which is um, approximately 90,000 hours over the course of a lifetime. And it's not just the quantity of time that we spend at work. Um, for many, work is a community that we belong to. Some of our most important relationships are at work. Our closest friendships might be at work. And how then are we to live if one of the primary spaces that we inhabit, the workplace, isn't one where the integration of these things is often seen as acceptable or appropriate? Today's passage from a letter that Paul wrote to the Christian church in Colossae, which is uh, part of modern-day Turkey, about 20 years after Jesus' death, um, change, challenges this notion that we are to compartmentalize faith and work. It suggests that these two things are actually pretty compatible with each other. In fact, Paul argues that sharing faith is an essential part of work. My hope is that these verses will help us see that demonstrating um, faith and sharing it in the workplace doesn't have to be forced or awkward at all. Rather, if we live as God intends us to, doing great work, building authentic relationships with coworkers, and sharing God's message can exist in a totally symbiotic way. 
And for those of us here today that might not identify as Christians, I hope you'll find this passage helpful for you too. Maybe it puzzles you as to why Christians are always trying to share their faith. Maybe you've had awkward or even unpleasant experiences with people who are overly pushy about it. Maybe those experiences were insensitive, alienating, or offensive. And if that is you, I hope that, um, well, first of all, I'm sorry for the hurt that that could have caused. Uh, and I hope that as we get into the Bible and actually hear about what God has to say about the matter himself, um, you'll get a sense for where his heart is on this topic. And despite the church's sometimes failure to appropriately reflect it. Okay, so let's set a little context on the passage that we're reading today, because if you were at all paying attention, there are some challenging things about today's scripture. Last month at our launch party, David uh, reminded us, us of the church's slogan, believe, uh, belong, believe, and become. And today's passage is all about the become part of that uh, Christian journey. And central to Paul's thesis is this letter that, uh, in this letter is that believing in Christ, the freedom that it affords us means a lot for daily living. Christianity was making huge waves across the Middle East and Asia Minor because of this revolutionary idea that all humans are equal before God. Paul articulates this idea to the letter, uh, the Galatians, explaining that in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith for all of us who are baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves in Christ. Neither, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Nowadays, the universal equality of human beings is sort of a self-evident truth to a lot of us, but that's because these teachings have had 2,000 years to influence the world, and Christianity itself was adopted by a third of the populations by now. Back when this was written, though, the idea of radical equality before God, if taken seriously, had the potential to upend the major social structures of the time. And history has shown us it eventually did. As Jesus' following grew, many people from different backgrounds were brought together, in some cases because entire households were joining the faith. The later chapter, in uh, late, the latter half of chapter three, where our passage today begins, is entirely focused on how members of the Christian households were to relate to each other in light of their new faith, which held very different values compared to the norms of Roman society. The specific relationships that Paul addresses here include those within homes, parents and children, husbands and wives, and importantly for our discussion today, slaves and their masters. So here's where we need to address the obvious question, and you may have been asking it as soon as David started reading the verse. Um, at face value, you'd likely get the impression that Paul is condoning slavery. His advice to slaves to obey their masters seems pretty self-explanatory. And to be sure, verses like this have been actually used historically by people who found it convenient to justify slavery, much to our horror and chagrin. But here's where it helps to take the Bible itself in its totality. God is clear in his opposition to slavery. Just to highlight a couple of examples that are many, we're told as early as Genesis that multiple times uh, that we are all created equal in his image. In Exodus, when God was establishing the Mosaic law, he specifically prescribed the death penalty for anyone who kidnapped and sold another person and enforced emancipation of any slaves that were part of Jewish society on a regular basis. Paul himself wrote in the verse in Galatians I quoted earlier, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, we are all equal. The Bible is consistent and emphatically against slavery. And it's this scriptural impetus that has put Christians at the forefront of abolition movements in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, there's no justifying slavery no matter how you slice it. But Paul, and Paul isn't condoning it here. 
In fact, he's actually doing here, what he's doing here is to give instruction to the church community on how to behave in this social structure because it's precisely their Christian beliefs that would have them challenge it. Okay, but how does slavery relate to work here? Um, to understand that connection, it helps us to mention that slavery in the Roman Empire is very different than our natural point of reference, which is the brutal and racist institution of the colonial South. First of all, slavery was, very unfortunately, an economic bedrock of the Roman Empire. Slaves made up about 20 to 30% of the population, depending on where or when you were measuring that, that data. Um, and in the Roman world, people might go into slavery for a period of time in order to settle debts. Many slaves paid, wa paid wages for their work. They could own other slaves sometimes. And while some were unskilled laborers, many were doctors, teachers, accountants, and civil service servants. A slave was on average in that position for about 10 years. They fulfilled their obligation and then became free. So functionally, it really was more similar to indentured servitude um, and was the professional setting with which, within which a significant portion of people uh, in the Roman society actually worked. So without taking away from the moral reprehensibility of slavery or God's clear opposition to it, um, it's within this second piece of context that what we understand slave to be, this slave and master relationship, um, is most akin to the professional working relationship between employees and employers for today. And it's within this lens that we're going to look at Paul's instruction. So what can we learn about Christianity, uh, whether Christians are to act in the context of uh, their work or profession? So three points for us today. The first is that sharing your faith at work begins with a mindset that recognizes that God is your ultimate employer. The second is that we ought to pray for opportunities to share our faith and be prepared to walk through any of those doors that he opens for us. And the third is to remember that whether it's the call to work or to share faith, God is asking for our faithfulness and not results. So let's unpack this first one, which is the idea that God wants us to approach work with the attitude that God is our ultimate employer. He is our heavenly boss, and he makes, has much more authority in our lives than our earthly bosses. So in verse 23 of chapter 3, Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. As people, uh, ask people most, uh, most of why they work, and you get a spectrum of answers. On one end, uh, some view, people view work as maybe just a transaction of labor for money. On the other, work can be a means of self-actualization, a way to achieve our best. Last week, Cindy dove deep into this idea of what happens if we let work consume us. If work is just a way to get paid, it becomes this stifling hamster wheel. If work is where we place all of our hopes and purpose and meaning, it becomes like the ring from the Lord of the Rings, a cage that consumes us like it did Golem in Tolkien's fantasy story. Paul here resets the agenda on what it means to work, bucking that binary. Instead of thinking about work as just a paycheck or the path to ultimate purpose, Paul urges Christians to make the why of work about God. And what does that really mean, though? Paul actually lays it out for us pretty much verse by verse. So we look at verse 22. He encourages slaves to obey their earthly masters with sincerity, out of reverence for God, not transactionally, or just when we're being observed or evaluated, but at all times, even when no one will be there to know the difference. Verse 23 says, and goes a step further, encouraging us not just to be consistent in our work, but to work with all our heart, to put all of our effort into work, and to care about what we do. Verse 24 gives us the reason for why this motivation is different and unique, that our ability to be sincere and put full effort into work is because at the end of the day, a Christian isn't looking for reward in the workplace, which of course is important, 
they're really placing their fundamental hope in an inheritance from the Lord. Uh, this idea of an inheritance of, uh, from the Lord is a direct reference to what Cindy uh, unpacked for us last week in Galatians. This idea that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid for all of humanity's brokenness, including how we've twisted work from an enterprise for service and creation uh, into a prison that can enslave and oppress. By accepting his gift of grace, we belong to him, or as Paul writes, we become his heirs. We are part of God's family, and to borrow from last week's message, we belong, our future is secure, and we are deeply known and loved by him. Injustices can happen all the time at work. Good employees aren't properly recognized, bad ones get promoted, supervisors can mistreat us, uh, while prejudices, discrimination, and favoritism runs rampant. Looking to God as our ultimate authority and source of motivation frees us from holding grudges or grievances from work. Verse 25, Paul encourages us not to harbor resentment toward those who wrong us, but to place our hope in God's justice because he is just and sovereign over everything. He is the one who works things out in the end. Paul also addresses those who are in positions of management. In verse one, chapter four, it clearly states that we, they, are providing what is, they are to provide what is right and just for all their subordinates. This intentionally goes beyond what is either legally or contractually obligated, and he calls those of us who are charged with leading others to apply a moral standard that goes above and beyond the bare minimum. This definitely would have raised an eyebrow or two for any slave or master reading this letter at the time. The point, though, is Paul is not prescribing us with a list of behaviors that we should strive for. Rather, he's really focusing on the motivations and reasons that will drive those behaviors. Again, the why of it, and specifically whom we draw our uh, strength and motivation from, and that someone is God. When we tap into him, we're leaning on God, the God of the universe who does not lack for resources. We can work for him from a place of freedom, security, and love, rather than a place of insecurity, constraints, and want. When this happens, our faithful labor can be transformed into a gift and act of ministry to those around us. So here's some examples of what that might look like. If you find yourself in an environment where everyone is disengaged or phoning it in, what if you put care and effort into your work even when no one else cared? That can be a real act of service and love to your customer, your coworker, or your boss who's relying on your deliverables for their livelihood. Or let's say you're in a place where there's chronic dissatisfaction. There's a rampant culture of bad mouthing and gossip, just bad vibes all around. Instead of partaking in that or withdrawing into isolation, um, working with sincerity heart could mean striving to celebrate and lift up others and focus on the positive. Uh, in a toxic work environment, you could be the person that creates a safe space for someone who might feel demoralized uh, or disengaged. Conversely, um, you might work in a super high-performing, A-players-only environment where competition rules, everyone's one-upping each other, but also living in constant fear of failure. In that environment, if you hold fast to God as your real source of recognition and approval, you won't be hostage to seek, uh, insecurities or seeking the approval of others. That perspective might just give you enough mental space to care for others who might feel stressed out, anxious, or struggling. When we shift our focus to God as a source of both motivation and our ultimate authority, in the long run, we will begin to behave in a way that shares our faith with others by default because it's infused in the way that we work. Jesus describes it this way in Matthew 5 when he says that we let our light shine before others so that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So doing good work sincerely and wholeheartedly, honoring your managers, peers, or reports, 
gives testimony to God's work in our lives. Our actions form the foundations with which we share our faith. And so the second thing that Paul instructs us is to pray earnestly for God to open doors to faith conversations and to be prepared to walk through them as he does. In chapter 4, Paul sort of moves away from instructions specific to households and talks more broadly about uh, the importance of praying for opportunities to share our faith. Verse 2, he asks the church to devote themselves to prayer. In other words, really prioritizing and investing time in praying. We're instructed to ask for a couple of specific things. Verse 3 says, to pray for God to open the door for his message, that we may have an opportunity to share it. Notice that God is the one whom Paul says will open the door here, creating the opportunity to share his message. This is why there shouldn't ever really be an ick or sort of like a cringe factor to sharing our faith, because we simply are following Paul's words here. Um, in our daily work, we approach it with the mindset that God is our boss. And in the long run, that will cause us to serve and honor our coworkers in ways that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do by ourselves, especially when things get tough. That alone will speak volumes to your coworkers because they will be personally ministered to you by your faithful labor. Then in parallel to that, pray, pray, and pray some more for God to bring opportunities to share your faith and to be on the lookout for any doors that he might open. Now, to be sure, that doesn't mean that we would passively wait, right? Verse 2 says that we are to be watchful in our prayers. And verse 5 says we are supposed to make the most out of every opportunity. We have to be proactively on the lookout. In my own experience, those opportunities don't usually come in the form of a coworker straight up just asking me to tell them about Jesus. Um, more often, they represent, you know, in conversation, naturally, organically turns towards spirituality. Maybe it's a major event that happened in their life that you're sharing about, or you're talking about family backgrounds and upbringing. Um, in these times, asking thoughtful questions and listening carefully where, about to where they're coming from can give you an indication as to whether your friend or coworker is actually interested in exploring the topic with you, and you can take their lead on it. Then in verse four or five, Paul writes, if the opportunity presents, be ready to share. Paul actually gives us a lot of very practical guidance on how we're to share once that opportunity presents itself. Verse four says that we should speak clearly. Our story has to be easily understood. Most of us would struggle to eloquently or succinctly answer this question, why do you believe in God, if asked on the spot. Some time that we can spend beforehand to have an answer ready uh, can be very helpful uh, and practical to do. Do you have an idea of how you might share your own story if the opportunity came up? For example, did you face a challenge in your life where being able to lean on God was critical to helping you get through it? In what ways have you found that your relationship with God allows you to be your best self? It doesn't really have to be your entire life story. It just needs to be something that helps others see the role that God is playing in your life. And take this next point for what it's worth. It could be the marketer and me talking but I find that it also helps to have a few versions of your story that can be used in different situations. For example, have a one to two sentence answer, have a 30 second answer, have a full version to tell over longer conversation. These can all be really helpful for making the most of every opportunity because not every opportunity is the same. So if Paul's first point about how to share the good news of Jesus verbally is to make sure that you're clear and understandable, his second, stated in verse six, is to be full of grace and seasoned with salt when you speak. So what does that exactly mean? There's two parts to it, the grace part and the salt part. Grace is about meeting people where they are. It's by being empathetic and really listening to where they're coming from. Sharing with someone is so much more natural and easy when it comes from a relationship that you've invested time and, uh, and care to build uh, that relationship uh, uh, with that person uh, naturally. 
Grace also means that we are kind and courteous, not defensive or argumentative. Sometimes we use the word witness to describe the idea of sharing faith. Um, by definition, that word really just means to testify or give evidence for something. It means sharing about your individual lived experience of God. This is different from being a salesperson. We're simply called to justify, uh, to testify our own experience, not to win an argument or to, build, uh, to work towards a sales quota. Season with salt is about making sure the message has flavor, that it isn't bland. If you keep your sharing vague, leaving out how God has personally impacted your life, or more importantly, what Jesus' sacrifice and free gift of grace actually means for that, your friend might not come away with a really clear understanding of what the gospel is. They may think it sounds kind of appealing, but if they can't understand it, you might end up shortchanging um, your coworker or your friend in that conversation. We need to remember, um, now that doesn't mean that we need to cram that into every single interaction that we have, right? Because that salt part is balanced by the grace part, which means that we are meeting people where they are. But it does mean that in our ultimate goal, um, we are to present the good news in its entirety. Sometimes that can take time because this is not a one-off sales pitch, it's a friendship, a lifelong relationship that we have with the people that we're sharing. So again, if we follow what Paul says here, we, should be, we shouldn't feel anything forced or awkward about any of this. This should all be happening as a natural continuum of you working diligently in your place of work and sincerely caring for people around you. Sharing your faith requires putting in the work of actually loving the people you wish to share it with. Talking to them about God without caring for them relationally is forced and inauthentic. Caring for them but censoring the gospel from your interactions or leaving it out, the reason for your love, is also clearly insufficient. We have to take the most of every opportunity to do both together at the same time. So the third thing to remember is that at the end of the day, whether we're talking about how we work or how we share our faith, God is not really looking for results. He's asking for our faithfulness. What Paul has laid out for us here is a practical and holistic way to live out sharing your faith. And it's centered around serving and caring for others uh, and loving them. Now, this might seem pretty compelling, but if you're me, you're looking at these verses and are also pretty intimidated. Sharing faith requires us to put ourselves out there. It's taking a risk and it's pretty nerve wracking. Being clear and understandable, speaking with grace and truth all at the same time, seems a lot easier said than done. And so for many of us, just getting through work feels like a win to celebrate. I mean, how are we supposed to pile on all these expectations on top of doing our jobs? I think the big encouragement that scripture has for us here is that, and this is a theme that we've talked about throughout this series about thriving at work, uh, is that God longs for us to participate in sharing his good news, but he's not focused on our results. He's just looking for our willingness to obey. Jesus tells a great parable in the book of Mark chapter four that illustrates this idea. In this parable, Jesus likens us to farmers and his goals to a seed that the farmer is sowing. Night and day, he says, whether the farmer sleeps or eats up, uh, gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though the farmer does not know how. But as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. The farmer just needs to sow the seed and water the soil. That's it. Ensuring the biology of how that seed grows into a mature crop is not the farmer's job. That's God's work. We are here simply asked to sow the seed and water the soil and to be there for the harvest when the crop is ready. In the exact same way, being faithful is doing our best to live and work as God, with God as our boss, being present and willing to share about him. And on top of this, God has not charged us to do this work alone or by our own strength. He's actually promised his Holy Spirit that will equip us and go along with us too. Jesus himself reassured his followers on this multiple times that the Holy Spirit would help them. 
Uh, in John chapter 14, he explains to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach them all the things and remind them of what he said. Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, after Jesus rose from the dead, he again told his followers that the Holy Spirit would be the one to empower them as they shared his good news. God doesn't really need us to do his work. He loves us and wants to bring us into partnership with him so that we can experience his power and deepen our relationship. This reminds us of the core of the gospel, that our salvation is not of our own doing, but a gift of grace. We don't place our confidence in ourselves, but in him. We bring our imperfect but willing selves, and God takes care of the rest. In this way, all of our work, whether we're actually working in our jobs or acting to share his good news that he's called us to, is really an outgrowth of our salvation, not the means to achieve it. And so I wanted to share a real-life example in closing that might help bring some of what we've discussed into focus and to provide maybe a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of encouragement to us as we chew on Paul's message to live out and share our faith at work. Uh, the example I wanted to share with you is a real-life situation uh, that my uncle experienced. He's been in the corporate world for about three decades now, and there's this one particular job that he had for about eight years where he was one of the senior leaders in his organization. The first four years of that role were pretty smooth. He was impactful, he got good report with his team, including his boss, who was head of the entire group. A few years in, though, things started to go sideways. My uncle's boss began to exhibit a pattern of using company resources, uh, relationships, and funding for his own personal benefit. And he also became increasingly controlling and harsh in his managerial style, especially if anyone challenged him. The atmosphere around the office became tense uh, and strained, and his boss demanded loyalty. Anyone who challenged him could count on being verbally disparaged, their competence questioned, and even managed out. Unfortunately, this person was also really good at their job, um, politically savvy, uh, and really good at managing up. Sounds probably familiar to uh, some of our experiences, right? Uh, while technically there were avenues for employees to report abuses, people never used them out of either fear or lack of trust in that process. And so over an 18-month period, the 40-person group that my uncle was part of, um, a third of those people had turned over, either because they quit because they couldn't stand the environment or because they had been actively managed out. My uncle never explicitly fought his boss, but his lack of willingness to fall in line put a target on his back. And he had been brought in by senior leaders more senior than his boss, so he couldn't really be fired for political reasons. Um, so his boss chose to make very life difficult for him instead, first by demoting him without reducing the scope of his work, then actively shutting him out of meetings and decision-making processes that he otherwise should have participated in, which undercut his influence and credibility in the organization. Through this, my uncle tried his best to keep his cool and continued to work diligently in his job, and he did this for four years. He remembers it as a long, dark, and frustrating time, but God was also working amidst this darkness. My uncle was one of a few Christians in the office. People were generally aware of this because it wasn't a huge place, but faith wasn't really a top of mind discussion that came up very often. But he would lift his work up to God in prayer frequently. And as things got worse at the office, the frequency of those prayers increased. One day, my uncle was uh, with a coworker in the car coming back from a business meeting. And out of the blue as they're driving, he suddenly says to my uncle, uh, Daniel, that's my uncle's name, I started to read the Bible. This caught my uncle by surprise because they worked closely together but really hadn't spent any time talking about Christianity or religion. It just wasn't something that naturally came up. So naturally he said, well, oh, tell me more about this. Why are you reading the Bible? 
And his response was, and I was able to get a verbatim on this, there are lots of memories from these years that my uncle has shut out of his mind, but this really stuck out, and he was able to give me sort of like what he actually said. And his coworker said, you know, things have been really hard in the office, and everyone knows it's been hard on you in particular. But when I look at the way that you're responding to it, it's just not what normal people do. When I look at you, I think I see God in your life. And as it turned out, he was not the only one who was making this observation. His coworkers' interest blossomed into a weekly outside-of-work Bible study that my uncle started, along with one or two other Christians in the office. And over his final years at that job, about 15 people from that office, at one point or another, were attending that group. In the end, seven people made decisions to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I find this story really relevant to us uh, and today's scripture for so many reasons. First of all, it's a vivid example of why the simple command to work with God or your boss is not so simple. Working sincerely and wholeheartedly is a no-brainer when things are going well at work. But when things are not going at well, um, obeying that command can feel brutal. But it's precisely in those moments that it makes all the difference. My uncle is a super low-key guy. When I spoke to him about this experience, he said, honestly, I'm not sure that I was a particularly bright light, but maybe when the darkness is really, really dark, small lights could still get noticed. Secondly, I love that prayer was part of his experience, right there when he was in the office. As Paul said, we should pray for God to open a door to his message. And he took the opportunity to walk through that door by moving from that initial conversation in the car to a regular meeting that made space for his coworker to explore and study the scripture. He didn't just leave his coworker hanging, but made the effort to help him in his exploration. And as I was discussing this message with my uncle, he also had this thought about the Great Commission, which I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon. Um, Jesus gave to his disciples this command to go and make disciples. This isn't just following, but going. It might not always be, uh, you know, involve crossing the ocean or flying to a faraway place, but at minimum, it probably means getting out of some sort of comfort zone that we're in. And that's something that God always asks of us. My uncle didn't ask, plan, or choose to be in the situation that he found himself in, but he did need to prepare. And, as we, also need to, and we also need to prepare not knowing exactly how God is gonna use us. For the first four years in that job, there was no indication whatsoever that God would eventually use his diligence and faithfulness in work to speak to his coworkers. God is just asking for us to be faithful. He's inviting us into his work, and when we accept that invitation, he becomes our heavenly father. Uh, he, or he becomes our master as well, and our work becomes his work. Not because we're qualified, but because it's an expression of his love for us. And if we're willing to lean into it, imperfections, failures, and all, he will use us. So maybe in closing, I'll leave you with a couple of questions to ponder. First, are we working as though God is our boss? Or is your earthly career the ultimate source of authority in your life? How might God want us to raise our standards regarding how we work for his sake? Second, are we asking for opportunities to share his message and proactively looking to God to open those doors? Do we also need to ask for boldness so that we will have courage to step forth when that opportunity comes? And have we given thought to what we might say or do if a friend asks us? Most importantly, are we taking the time to internalize the truth that um, God's grace, of God's grace, which asks us to be faithful and obedient. We entrusting him to take care of the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you because you're a Heavenly Father, and you don't only call us to participate in your work, but to empower us and enable us, enable us to do it as well. Um, 
We confess that we often forget this and often allow work to be all about us and our objectives, that we're often too wrapped up in our own ambitions and securities, insecurities to remember that you are our true master. We pray that you would help us fix our eyes on you when we are at work and to draw from your strength and not our own so that we can be faithful and sincere in our work, ready to care and serve for others that we work with. Father, we also ask for you to give us opportunities to share our faith and for boldness to make the most of them. Would your spirit guide us and give us words to speak clearly and compellingly and to help us to listen and respond with grace and truth. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to share um, and participate in your work. We pray that you'd use this church body to bless those around us so that our friends, our families, and our communities can come to know you. In your name we pray, amen.